15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again and thank you for joining us. This is the Space Nuts podcast and my name is Andrew Dunkley, your host, and joining me for episode 260 is someone completely the same. It is Fred Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. How did we get to 260? For goodness sake. Um, I don't really know. No. I don't really know. But it's, me uh, it's, a, oh, it's great. It's really yeah, a thrill. It is. And, it's fantastic. Uh, yeah. And, and I think we've um, created something of a um, kindred community uh, when you when you look at the social media interaction between people. And uh, and I, I want to send a shout out straight away to my um, self-appointed police force on the Space Nuts podcast group Facebook page <laughs> because they are on ready alert for any infiltrators who are trying to spam us and um, they get on them pretty quick. So good job. Yeah. Good job. Now, coming up, uh, we will be um, answering questions, which we were going to dedicate the whole episode to, but um, we've got a couple of things we want to talk about first, so we'll do that. But we've got questions from Richard on the Sunshine Coast, Mark in Newbury in the UK, Doug from Seattle, and Thomas in Orlando. And if you're all going, geez, I sent those questions in months ago. Yeah, we know. Um, They've been on the back burner, and because we don't think we give the text people uh, a fair tilt, on Space Nuts, they're all text questions. So we'll get into those and some really fascinating topics too, I might add. Uh, Before we get to our first story though, Fred, are you still in lockdown? I heard they're going to extend the lockdown in Sydney. Indeed we are, yes. We were originally going to be locked down till Friday this week, but now it's been extended till Friday next week, which um, continues to stuff up arrangements that we've got here. Never mind. Yeah. That's all right. It's all in a good course. Yeah, I suppose it's unavoidable. They've got to haul this in. They've got to deal with it. And I know it puts a few noses out of joint, but... Uh, the good news is I'm no longer in isolation. My time well, is done. Right. And good, because, yes, of because, course, yeah. Yeah, because I'm not in Sydney, I, I can go back to the radio station, which sound uh, sounds nice, but it actually smells rather putrid because <laughs> uh, the cold weather has driven the mice inside. Oh, no, oh, so Andrew. It stinks like you oh, couldn't believe. God, that's and, awful. <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm fed up with them. I am fed up with them. Yeah. They are just, yeah, um, they're not going away, the little... Horrors, beggars. Mm. <laughs> now, uh, let's get into our first story. Uh, this I heard on the news today on our radio station. Uh, it looks like we've got a space race on <laughs> yeah. for young and old, particularly old, because it's it's not your traditional Russia versus America to the moon space race. This is Virgin Galactic, uh, Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos uh, trying to get into their um, their, their, their orbital uh, air, uh, spacecraft First, yeah, and uh, the way I'm looking at it, the bookies have got short money on Richard Branson at the moment. Uh, yes, that's right, <laughs> they have, um, according to all the various announcements that have been made. <clears throat> Excuse me, <clears throat> so we've got a very esoteric uh, record breaking uh, record to be set here. Um, the first uh, billionaire into uh, into space with their own spacecraft, uh, and it, it's between. Richard Branson of Virgin Galactic, Jeff Bezos of uh, of uh, um, New New um, Origin. 
his company is Blue Origin. I beg your pardon, not New Origin, Blue Origin. Uh, and so uh, the um, just to the quick background uh, that both of these companies are aiming to take tourists on suborbital flights uh, above the Earth's surface to uh, about 100 kilometers. So an up and down trip to 100 kilometers. Uh, and uh, but they do it in different ways, um, as we've spoken about before. But just very briefly to reiterate or to, to recap, Branson's Virgin Galactic operates with uh, a, a, an aircraft essentially to take the space vehicle mm. up to round about sixteen kilometers, maybe a little bit higher. Um, it's a four-engine jet, very unusual form, two fuselages and a, a place in between them where you can hang the, the rocket plane. Get up to 15 or 16 kilometres, release the rocket plane. Uh, it fires its rocket motor, which accelerates. It only burns for, I think, 90 seconds. But in that time, it whizzes you up to uh, roughly, um, uh, roughly. Uh, uh, let me think. Yes, about one kilometer per second is your. I'm just doing the calculations in my head. A little bit more than one kilometer per second, which is not high enough to go into orbit, but it's enough to poke you up uh, very rapidly uh, to this height yes. of 100, 100 uh, kilometers or so. And once the rocket motor cuts out and you're coasting upwards, that's when you're you're weightless. Uh, you reach apogee, the highest point, fall over again, and you're, you're still weightless until the rocket plane starts deploying its brakes, which actually means bending up the rear, uh, the rear end of the of the, the delta mm. uh, aerofoil, and then it lands like a glider. Uh, that's the Branson method. The Bezos method with Blue Origin is a lot more straightforward. Your capsule is sitting on top of a rocket, which simply sends you up, uh, once again accelerates you to that typically one a bit more than one kilometre per second upwards. Um, the rocket falls away, your capsule keeps on going uh, and then lands with parachutes once it's gone through the same process, going up to, uh, to apogee and falling back under weightlessness. When, once the parachutes are deployed, that, then you start feeling accelerations again. Um, the reason why I wanted to mention this, though, uh, today, Andrew, is because the first planned flight now is probably going to be before our next broadcast or our next podcast wow. uh, with um, with Branson scheduling a flight. I think technically he said not before the 11th of July, but everybody's putting the 11th of July in the diary, you know, <laughs> oh, that must be it. Um, whereas uh, the, the Bezos uh, first flight with Jeff on board is currently sh uh, scheduled for 20th of July. Um, and mm. so... Uh, the yes, the, the the race is on. Who knows whether everything will go well? I don't think it really is a race. And I have to say, both these companies have been extraordinary in the attention they've paid to, uh, you know, to getting everything right. Because this is a difficult thing to do to take people into space. Uh, the last thing you want is an accident. They've already had one. Virgin Galactic lost one of their test pilots uh, several years ago. It might have been twenty fourteen. It was quite a while ago. Um, the the inside story from people closely connected, certainly at NASA people I've spoken to, uh, say, um, and I'm sure the same is true of uh, Blue Origin, but they say that Virgin Galactic is exemplary in the way it deals with all the the all, you know the issues that that need to be looked after. Um, Branson is going to be, I think, the first and 
paying in inverted commas customer because even though he owns the company effectively he's not actually a staff member um so they've had to do all the clearance that the you know the requisite uh, legal clearances to fly with passengers because he counts as a passenger uh and so the, mm. the, that all went through last week as i understand it so that the road is clear for um, branson to make his flight uh sometime oh, my guess is it'll be next week sometime uh you never know quite with weather and things of that sort um it will be it, it will actually be the 22nd flight of the their rocket planes um but not not the 22nd to reach the edge of space um it's yeah. had, they've had four flights that have done that uh the the uh, blue origin uh, process uh, has been similarly extensive in its testing. Um, the uh, the two Bezos brothers will be the passengers on the mission, along with a person called Wally Funk. Do you know who Wally Funk is, Andrew? It rings a bell. Yeah, she is reason. one of the original Mercury 13 crew members, uh, the, the, the wow. team of female astronauts that were trained up and passed all the requisite uh, you know all the requisite um, uh, uh, tests and everything uh, for them to be able to fly with the Mercury capsules back in the early sixties. Uh, Wally Funk was one of them. Yeah. Uh, she's, I believe, she's eighty-two now. So um, that I think the reason that name rings a bell is they uh, portray her character in the um, TV series that Amazon, I think, was running. And I'm just trying to think of the name of the series now. It's just dropped out of my head, but. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, for all mankind, for all mankind. Okay. Yes, yeah, so she, yeah, oh, right. she, she's uh, someone's playing her character in that. Yeah. Okay, so that, that there's a link there if that's on Amazon. I think it's of Amazon. Course, yeah. Yeah. Phones, oh, Amazon. It might be Apple. So, Actually, yeah. I think it's on Apple. Okay, <laughs> I can't keep Apple, up. Yeah. Um, never mind. Um, so the, the the spacecraft is the New Shepard. Uh, it's a, a, essentially an up and down rocket of the kind I've just described. Uh, the the great thing about the Blue Origin. Uh, technique is that like uh, Elon Musk's SpaceX Falcon 9 spacecraft or a rocket ro- uh, you know um, sorry launch vehicles uh, Blue Shepard lands on its tail mm. uh, it doesn't just fall back to earth and uh, go bang it lands on its tail and so it can be reused it's really an extraordinary uh, process and uh, really interesting that we've got to this point in time where within a fortnight the two main contenders for space uh, you know, for space tourism, are on the point of making their first what you might call commercial flights. Yes, it's extraordinary, and uh, of course, you've been to the space um, drone, haven't you? What are the, the... yeah, the uh, spaceport, spaceport America, America that's right, that's in uh, in uh, New Mexico. Mm. Uh, it's at a place called it's a place called Upham. <laughs> that's the little <laughs> village, which I think is amazing. Uh, <laughs> um, but it's near it's near um, it's near a town with the extraordinary name of Truth or Consequences. Uh, and there's a story behind that. That's the nearest town. And once the, you know, once the spaceport becomes really fully operational, which it will eventually, uh, Truth or Consequences is going to be the place you go and, and uh, you know, take your hotel accommodation there until you until you make your flight. Yeah, they must be thrilled that this is all starting to happen. Yeah. yeah. What, what they're less thrilled about is that it's taken so long because I think that spaceport was built... Uh, probably seven or eight years ago yeah. it would have been i've got a feeling it was 2014 when we visited it so quite a while back. yeah but look you can't really knock them for taking I so much time because safety is 
is the primary yeah. thing. So yeah, we wish yeah. them well, and we we we, we we'll do. wait and see what what happens, and yeah. um, you know, uh, hopefully all uh, will uh, go perfectly. Uh, we'll- and um, sorry, Andrew, I was just going to say, won't it be nice for us to be able to report on something that's been a year in the future for the last uh, decade? Yes. Or so? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> All right. We wish yeah. uh, Jeff and uh, and Richard well in their in their exploits. Now, uh, let's uh, just quickly have a talk about this uh, story. Uh, it's uh, to do with Mars. Got nothing to do with uh, American or Chinese rovers uh, trundling around on the surface oh. trying to stop <laughs> peepladers from overtaking them. No, this is about water, and it looks like uh, there may be lakes under Mars' south pole. Well, that that's the that was the original story, and uh, you and I have spoken about this. I thought we had several times. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> I thought we <laughs> Just had. to remind you, back in 2018, it was scientists who were looking at data from Mars Express, which is the ESA spacecraft still in orbit around Mars, doing great stuff, um, which were saying that they were getting really strong radar reflections from a layer. I think it's about four kilometres beneath the surface of Mars's south polar ice cap. Uh, And that was uh, essentially interpreted as being reflections from a subsurface lake. And and there have been others since then, other uh, radar reflections. So the, the reason for that is that a water ice boundary is quite a strong reflector of radar signals. Uh, and so, you know, that was that's the most direct interpretation. Um, th- there's a bit of physics that had to be done as well, though, because, of course, the temperature on Mars near its poles is it's over 100 degrees below zero. Uh, and um, at least on the surface, it is maybe deep down because of the pressure of the ice. It's more like 70 degrees below zero. This is Celsius I'm talking about here, uh, minus 70. Um, and so... It's not just the pressure of the ice that's keeping the water warm if it's there, and by warm I mean minus 70 degrees, yeah. um, but also the fact that the people assume there will be dissolved salts in it, these perchlorates, which are like a natural antifreeze uh, and which make water, which lower the freezing point of water by a huge amount. Um, so that was the thinking that, you know, maybe that there are these perchlorates in the water and that's why it's there. However, New research, in fact, two lots of new research, uh, one by um, the, uh, I think the university, is it Ari- yes, Arizona State University. Um, that's uh, uh, some, in fact, it's a graduate student who's led this work, which is fabulous. Uh, uh, Ad- Aditya Kula is her name. Uh, I think that's how you say it. Uh, finding, finding, first of all, lots and lots of similar reflections but what they're finding is that these are in areas that the physics doesn't work to keep them warm it it, they're areas that are too cold for that water to remain liquid Uh, and there's another team of scientists at um, uh, Arizona once again Arizona State um, which uh, has been looking at what else there might be and this actually this news came out first it was this was released last week Um, it's that they have worked out that if you've got certain sorts of clays, maybe some metal-bearing minerals, or even really salty ice, slushy ice, uh, you might get the same 
you know, the same strong reflections uh, rather than this being water. So the, 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 the idea of it being liquid water in lakes has kind of gone off the boil a bit. Um, mm -hmm. We're now thinking it might be, actually might be clays or it might be a slushy uh, sort of thick, icy material uh, that's got minerals in it. Um, we're not sure. Uh, it's like a lot of science, Andrew. <laughs> you have these great ideas and you think there's, <clears throat> excuse me, great evidence for, for, for what you see, but because we can't go and touch it, um, you can you bring other ideas to bear and suddenly uh, things have changed. So we, we really don't know now um, uh, what this is all about, whether there is just um, so, some sort of cold mud down there or... Uh, you know, or whether there really is liquid water. And the fact that there are lots, they've got, the, the new work has included many, many measurements that show literally thousands of these higher reflective areas. Um, so if it is water, then it, it's everywhere. Or perhaps more likely, it seems that it might be something else. So mm. we, we really don't know. Um, it's 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 a really interesting uh, impasse in a way. Uh, there's another paper that came out um, a couple of years ago that once again threw into doubt the idea that just pressure and perchlorates could keep this water liquid. The, the, this, this paper said that um, the only way you could you could explain liquid water under the South Pole would be if there'd been recent volcanism heating up the subsurface ice in that region. Um, so it's looking less likely that we've found lakes under the under the South Pole of, of Mars, which is a pain because it says in my new book that we found lakes under the South Pole of Mars. <laughs> Fortunately, Do a last minute yeah, last minute edit. It's not too late. That's right. We're doing the copy editing right now, so mm, I can mm. change. Oh, that. that's some somewhat of a disappointment. Instead yeah. of crystal clear water, we've yeah. got bogs. Bogs, yeah, that's bogs, right. swamps, yeah. <laughs> swamps <laughs> under the ice. You can't call them swamps anymore. They're wetlands. Wetlands, of course. Yes, I'm sorry. Well, the damp lands might be what it is, not wet. Yeah, possibly so. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, uh, I'm, I'm sure down the track we may hear more about this as they study more and more evidence and maybe one day mount a mission to try and figure it out yeah, for certain. I'm but, sure that will uh, happen. a lot of ice to get through. Yeah, yeah there is, mm. yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll get on to the questions very soon. You're listening to the Space Nuts podcast with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget the Space Nuts shop is uh, on our website where you can go to uh, you know peruse our stock whether you want a pair of flip-flops or a cap or a hat or a mug or a sticker or a, a bomber jacket. Uh, there's a vast array of uh, material there at the Space Nuts shop where you can uh, you know, buy something for yourself or a friend or a, a hard-to-buy-for uncle. Uh, it's spacenutspodcast.com and just click on the shop button, spacenutspodcast.com and then click on the shop button to uh, have a look through the Space Nuts shop. Now, I, I have something very, very important to say. Uh, young Ashley, who sent us uh, those squillions of questions last week, <laughs> suggested we needed a sticker that says, I am a Space Nut. Ashley, I am very, very pleased to report that Hugh thought that was the gr greatest idea in the world, and he's going to do it. <laughs> so we will be getting an I am a Space Nut sticker. 
And uh, Fred, we got a lovely note from Ashley's mum saying thanks for answering all his questions. Uh, it seems like we've sparked a lot of enthusiasm in young Ashley and uh, we're very pleased to have been able to get all those questions answered for him. And we're going to answer some more now. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of text questions and we, we don't do enough of these, so uh, we'll focus on these today. Now, this first one comes from Richard on the Sunshine Coast and uh, he says, um, uh our current technology lets us peer back to a galaxy 14.2 billion light years away in the infant universe. If we went to where that galaxy is seen, to the point where it was all those years ago, and peered out again with our telescopes, I assume we would find another galaxy somewhere that is also 14.2 billion light years away. And if we went to where that galaxy is presently located, would we be able to see the same, another galaxy 14.2 billion light years away and so on? Or is it the case that no matter where we are in the universe, we would always find something 14.2 billion light years away? Or the opposite, is there any place in the universe where we could only find objects less than 14.2 billion light years away? How does this not infer an infinite universe? Could space curve back on itself so that we still have a finite and expanding universe and still be able to peer out 14.2 billion light years no matter where we are? It's all too hard for my head to get around. Many thanks uh, for your outstanding show. Cheers, Richard. He's um, He's been really pondering this one from what yeah, I can it's tell. A great, it's, it's, um, it's a great question and it, it goes to the heart hmm. of, uh, you know, how we think the universe behaves. Um, it, it might be an old uh, report that Richard was looking at because the by today's measurement standards, the furthest galaxies that we can see are around about 13 billion light years away. Although that's, that's not a, you know, we glibly talk about them being 13 billion light years away. But in fact, what we really mean is that they are, we've got a look back time of 13 billion years to them because their true distance is probably much more than that because the expansion of the universe is probably more like 30 billion light years. Um, so anyway, that, that that's a detail that we doesn't really matter in this discussion because he's absolutely right that if we if we could be where that galaxy was, let's say it's 13 billion light years away from, from ours, and had a look, uh, there would a, we'd see the same thing as we see now. We'd see galaxies all around the sky. We would see um, the most distant ones would be about 13 billion light years away that we could see. And then if you went to another one, uh, it, it, it would be the same picture. Now, if you can do that ad infinitum, it suggests uh, an an infinite universe. Actually, it doesn't suggest that. What it suggests is an unbounded universe, one that doesn't have an edge. Um, because you can have uh, a finite universe that is unbounded. Um, if you think of the surface of the Earth, it, the surface of the Earth is definitely finite, but it doesn't have boundaries because you can you can keep going, you know, uh, forever. And and that's the point of yep. Richard's last comment that his space curved back on itself, so uh, so that it um, you know it, it looks as though uh, you, so basically you could go all the way around and come back to where you started from. Um, the current thinking is that eventually, eventually yes, after a week or two, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, the current thinking is that it's 
probably not that we've got what's called a flat universe. So the geometry of the universe means that it is kind of like the geometry that we've got around us. It just goes on forever. Um, and that, so yes, the, the answer is we, we don't know. Um, it, there are many cosmologists who believe that the universe probably is infinite. Uh, or at least unbounded, um, just to come back to that idea, but maybe infinite because if it's a flat universe, it's not curving back on itself. Uh, so it's it's really um, it's it's really at the forefront of physics, and you know Richard struggling to get his head around it is about the way I do as well. Uh, it's mm. um, one of one of the point is that um, I mean we only know what we can see from our vantage point and what we find is what we call an isotropic universe one that's the same in all directions it could be that as you move through that universe maybe that would change maybe we, you would find places where the density of matter was different and that would cause the universe to have a different curvature because it's the matter in the universe that gives it its curvature if when you're thinking about you know um, space bending back on itself. So, uh, from mm. our perspective, it looks as though it's infinite, but um, we can't we can't answer for the rest of the universe. We can only talk about our bit. So, Richard Fred just took twenty five <laughs> minutes to tell you we don't no, know. No, to tell him he's right. <laughs> he's right. right. We don't know. Okay, that's a fair enough assumption. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, no, but it, it is, I suppose, one of the biggest mysteries of the whole existence of existence because uh, th these are the questions we're pondering and the questions we're trying to answer and uh, you know, we're chipping, as I've said before, we're chipping away at these things and every time we chip something away and go, aha, we answer a question yeah, and we've got right. the chips get, they, they get bigger. It's a bit like the Sorcerer's Apprentice, you know, as you, as you chop, chop up one <laughs> yes. question, 20 more appear. <laughs> Yeah, it is like that, very much so. Anyway, Richard, there you are. That's uh, the, the latest that we have on the ever-expanding universe. Uh, and thank you for your question. Now, we'll move on to the UK uh, with uh, Mark uh, in Newbury. Uh, this is a short and sweet question. Uh, we know the hydrogen fuel in our sun will run out in approximately 5 billion years. What controls the rate of fusion between hydro, uh, hydrogen atoms to prevent the fuel from being burned up much faster to the point of happening instantly or slower than the current rate? Uh, the price of uh, fuel out of the <laughs> Middle East, I think, would have something to do with it. But um, I, I suspect... No, no, you're on the right track. <laughs> um, so the, the fusion process... It is essentially that um, basically hydrogen nuclei, which are protons, um, they, in fact, I think it takes four hydrogen nuclei to fuse into one helium nucleus. Um, and that this is the, you know, the, the, the process that drives the energy of the sun. Uh, and it's... Um, the figures I'm looking at here, about 0.7 of a percent of that fused mass is released as energy. Uh, so it's uh, it, it's a process that uh, it, it's it's discrete in the sense that it needs a certain number of hydrogen nuclei uh, to, to to make the um, you know the, the 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 helium nucleus and release the energy, and that process has got 
it, it's it's got a its own clock. Um, in other words, it always takes the same length of time. So uh, that I think explains part of the question. It's Mark's question, isn't it? Uh, that um, the that that so the the rate of that fusion is not a random thing. It depends on exactly which atoms are coming together uh, and how the you know the energy is released. It's a gamma ray photon that's released. That is uh, something that takes a specific time, and that's what causes the uh, you know the, the 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 thing to to, to sort of have this built-in clock with it. And then you've got to lump, as well as that, you have to lump the amount of hydrogen that's in the sun. So the bigger, uh, actually, is not it's not intuitive either because the more hydrogen you've got, the faster it burns. Uh, it, it's a bit the wrong way around. You'd think the more hydrogen you've got, the longer you would have. But it's the massive stars that burn through their hydrogen most quickly. Um, the current mm. rate of... Uh, hydrogen burning is about 600 million tons per second uh, it goes through uh, and of that about 4.2 or 4.3 million tons is turned into energy uh, and it's that direct um, fusion of that you know that amount into energy that gives us the heat and light of the sun that's going directly uh, uh, from mass into energy being multiplied by c squared uh, by e equals mc squared uh, so that's why you get so much energy from what is not that big an amount for 4.3 million tons per second i mean it is a lot but it's um, when you think of the solar system base, um, bathing in the heat or basking in the heat and light of the sun that 4.3 million tons per second gives a hell of a lot of energy Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can see it happening yeah, up in exactly. Canada at the moment with some of the yeah. record temperatures it they is had. Amazing. That is yes, just extraordinary right. what, uh, what that you know, record, record temperatures has in, you know, multiple yeah. degrees yeah. above their previous yeah, yeah, records. Smashed. We're not, you know, there's some places that have had uh, temperatures 12 degrees above their previous records. I mean, they're just Incredible. massive numbers. Um, and uh, I think I saw a story this week about, um, oh, now, where was it? I can't remember. Uh, but uh, one of one of the, I think it was one of the Greek islands or something. It uh, had the biggest fire in history uh, this week. So there's there's yeah, there's a lot of energy beaming down on us, and it's um, yeah, it's quite destructive at times, unfortunately. So um, yes, uh, it is. Um, yeah, there is a reason. It's the, 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 the and it's an interesting point that uh, the bigger the star, the faster it burns. Yeah, that's exactly not what you expect. I need to look into that one. Well, it seems logical <laughs> to me because it's the same with cars. So, yeah, the bigger yeah, they are, the, far, right. the more they burn. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I uh, hope that answered your question. Mark, thanks for uh, sending it in to us. I know you've uh, probably been waiting for that one to be answered. You've probably given up <laughs> waiting for that one to be answered, but we got to it. Yay. Uh, anyway, um, coming up, we're going to Infinity and Beyond with our next question here on the Space Nuts podcast with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Space Nuts. I'd like to say uh, thank you again to our patrons, and if you would like to become a patron of the Space Nuts podcast, you can do that via our website, spacenutspodcast.com, and click, click on the Support Space Nuts button, and all the options are there, whether you want to do it through Patreon or Supercast or PayPal or 
Space Nut Shops an option. Uh, just puts a bit of money in the kitty to keep us ticking along. Uh, we're not going to be able to pay for a trip into suborbital space with um, any of the gentlemen who are attempting to do so at the moment, but uh, it'll enable us to tell you about it. <laughs> that's, that's, what right. it's, that's what it's for. Uh, and it keeps, uh, keeps things rolling. So uh, thank you to our patrons, appreciate it, and and to our uh, supporters on social media uh, who are very, very active uh, on Facebook particularly, but also on YouTube where you can um, see what we're doing as well as uh, as listen. And, you know, how incredibly exciting is it to see our faces and uh, the back walls of our offices? <laughs> Lovely. What's the bowling pin all about, I'm wondering? That was a yeah, long I'm time wondering ago. That too. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's. I, I did win a bowling tournament once. <laughs> Believe it or well not, done, doesn't I, surprise me. <laughs> I've done some weird stuff. Okay, let's move on to our next question. This comes from Doug in Seattle, Washington. Hello, my favourite pair of erudite astrological Aussies. My question <laughs> is, Professor uh, for Professor Watson. No offence, Andrew. None taken. Uh, I understand the pro- if I understand the process correctly, what is uh, when a, uh, a sufficiently massive star collapses and neutron ge- degeneracy pressure is overwhelmed by extreme gravity? I practiced that and I still couldn't get it. It collapses further and becomes an infinitely small point with infinite density, a black hole. Conversely, in the earliest moments of our universe, the total mass of the universe existed in an almost incomprehensibly small area that expanded to the universe we see today. How did the universe expand? Why is the universe not an infinitely small point with infinite density? There was a big bang. Well, that's right. And exactly. You've got the answer in a nutshell there, Andrew. Um, there you go. The, so the, there, Doug. <laughs> let me put a bit of detail on Yes, that, I think you should. <laughs> um, uh, you, you know, so we, we're talking now about events that took place within the first 10 to the minus 33 of a second. Because beyond that, we kind of understand what how things work about the formation of you know, hydrogen nuclei, uh, the uh, which happened within the first three minutes. Um, that we we kind of understand it from that that fleeting moment after the Big Bang itself. But the first ten to the minus thirty three of a second, I think that's the number. It's something like that. We've no idea what happened. Um, clearly, something did. Some physicists have theorised that you could get, and this one does my head in, Andrew. You could get an instability in nothing that results in the Big Bang. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you can't have nothing that just stays nothing. It turns into something else. <clears throat> That's one of the ideas. It's starting but, to sound like a Monty Python song. Oh, it is, yes. Uh, in fact, <laughs> that's right. Um Especially where the big boot comes down and squashes them all at the end of the, the, end of the uh, <laughs> graphics at the intro with the raspberry. Um, yeah. It's it's uh, it's a really good question. Uh, um, you know, we're, it's Doug, isn't it? Our question. I don't have the question in front of me. The um, <clears throat> the the big the um, the thinking is that the, the big bang did come from a singularity now a singularity is exactly what a black hole is mm. uh it's uh it's a, a point in space with no dimensions 
and that gives it infinite mass. Um, so likewise, we think that the, the 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 Big Bang universe was itself a singularity that somehow detonated into what we see today, and it's just crazy to you know to think about how that could happen if you've got something that's less than the size of a full stop on a on a page of the hitler paradox um uh, you know how is it going to turn well maybe that explains how it turns into a universe i don't know but but yes it it it, it doesn't it's quite counterintuitive um, and as i said the physics that we understand can go back a long way can go back to this brief instant after the big bang but what happened before that is a closed book to us at the moment. And uh, theoretical physicists have a good stab at it, like saying, oh, yes, it's a point in nothing that became unstable. Um, and I, I have to say, I haven't looked at the mathematics of that. Um, and if I did, I doubt I'd understand them. Uh, but, um, yeah, so uh, your question is a good one, Doug, and it baffles me as much as it baffles you. <laughs> could, could it be, Fred, that there was a Ganab gib that created ah, a singularity a yes, yeah. and then that just couldn't hold and boom, Maybe. she went again? Uh, exactly. I mean, that is the, you know, that's the, what you might call the cyclic theory of the universe, that it was uh, a previous universe in, uh, collapsing and the collision of that collapse is what caused our universe. Um it still begs the question: What what happened at the beginning, though? You know, where did the first yeah. one come from? Uh, and and you've got like old Roger Penrose's ideas that um, universes do come from black holes. They, if you get black holes that are massive enough, they become unstable and they turn into a big bang, which in in many ways is a you know is is a bit more logical than a, a, than a, an instability in nothing. Um, the the, the bottom line is we don't know. And and you've always got this question, okay, oh, suppose it's a, a black hole becoming unstable. What formed the black hole in the first place? There must have been a universe in existence there to start with. Um, so where did that come from? And I have to say, as time has gone on over the, <laughs> the centuries of my life, I've, I've begun to suspect that there are some questions that we will never be able to find the answers to. Not because we don't have the physics, but because we we aren't equipped with the thought processes that might lead us to understand them. I know mm. that sounds wishy-washy and a bit ethereal, but it... It that just sounds like my entire school year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some of mine was like that as well. <laughs> my worst moment at school, Andrew, believe it or not, was in physics. And... Uh, um, uh, great. He was a fantastic teacher, but we all, you know, he was a bit short-tempered and a bit grumpy, and so he wasn't very popular. But he really laid into me once over my physics homework uh, because I was trying to add up calories and things of that to make the right answer for the amount of heat that you got in a bucket of water or something. And he tore into me when he got to it, and he said, "Why didn't you? Why didn't you add the date in as well? You might as well have done." You know. <laughs> <It's really laughs> Oh, but he, I did he, have a couple actually, of teachers like that. He's, I have never said this on air before on radio or anything, but his, his parting uh, – I went to a, what was a pretty, fairly good school. It was, it was a, a state school, state run, but it, was, you know, it had good teachers and a good reputation. And at the end of his tirade, he said, 
You try to make out you're a fool, but you can't be a fool or else you won't be at this school, you damn fool. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. There's some things that we will Uh, never be able to understand, like what was going through his mind. (laughs) Yeah, exactly so. Uh, Reminds me of uh, an English teacher we had in high school. I I adored him. He was... um, he, he inspired me in many ways yeah, and I got to meet him many years after his retirement and gave him a copy of All I See Is Mud because yeah, um, I just wanted to thank him for being my teacher. But great. he was he was tough. He was really tough. And nobody, nobody gave him cheek. And if he just heard a ripple of of attitude, he would just look at them in the eye and he could you would wither. Yeah, yeah. And he would say, do it again and I'll throw you through the wall. <laughs> And he meant it, and we were on the second floor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was tough, oh, good on but him. he was fair, and he was a good teacher. Yeah, you know, yeah a lot a of them were. Really loved yeah. him. Um, so that was uh, Doug's question in Seattle. <laughs> Fabulous question too, Doug. Thank you. Uh, and uh, yes, uh, it continues to be one of the the great mysteries, really. Um, but, you know, I think we'll figure it out by next week. Now let's move on to our final question in this episode 260 of the Space Nuts podcast from Thomas in Orlando. I've been to Orlando. I loved it. Too many alligators. Uh, why is the speed of light a constant? Uh, what is it about photons that makes them travel at only one speed? Does space-time have meaning to a photon or is it everything at once? Thanks, Tom in Orlando. Um, I know that photons can be affected by gravity, but I suppose in real yeah, terms actually, but they travel at one speed. They, they, so the bottom line is uh, in, in a vacuum they travel at one speed, right. 300,000 kilometres per second, um, a foot per billionth of a second if you're in the, uh, in the imperial units, <clears throat> this, this much in a billionth of a second. can't see it. So um, gravity does affect light, but it doesn't slow it down. What it does is it it redshifts it, uh, so it changes its wavelength. That's the effect of gravity. Uh, but it, it's a really good question, and it's a little bit like the last one we've had. Um, we we don't really know, um, and in many ways, the speed of light it's it kind of sacrosanct uh, in that it doesn't change. It is relentlessly constant in its value to the extent that space and time change around it that's what relativity is all about the constant speed of light is one of the basic premises of of relativity special relativity Um, if the speed of light is constant then you're going to have weird effects with um, space and time actually deforming and you you know we, we talk about that frequently so it's it's almost like you know it's it's like a uh, a, a bedrock of of constancy, uh, which was spotted first by James Clerk Maxwell when he did his work on electromag- uh, electromagnetism in the middle of the nineteenth century. He kept coming out with this uh, with this quantity, and it's to do with electrical charge. And I think he, he gave it the the letter C. Uh, we call the speed of light C. I think it was Clerk Maxwell who did that. And he couldn't get rid of it. It was always the same. It was this number that kept popping out. And it was almost like, oh, wait a minute, that's the speed of light, you know, <laughs> because that had been measured by then. It was uh, it, So it was at the uh, the absolute root of all the 
electromagnetic studies he was doing. And that's a bit like what it is in physics today. It's totally fundamental. There are just a few physicists who think that they have spotted evidence of it changing uh, at very great distances. John Webb is perhaps one of the principal proponents of this. He's a scientist at the University of New South Wales. Um, before COVID-19, John was always somewhere else. He was always giving a colloquium in Cambridge or Princeton or somewhere. So they used to call him the World Wide Web. Oh, that's um, right. Yeah, yeah. I've heard you tell <laughs> but, me that before. He, yeah. It's probably slowed him, slowed him down a bit with COVID-19. <laughs> um, John thinks that, and I'm not sure whether he still thinks this, this goes back a decade or so, that in the spectra of quasars, the, the emission that is emitted by these extraordinary, uh, you know, black hole sources at distance in the distant universe. Um, when he looks at the spectra of quasars, he thinks he sees a shift that could only be explained by one of the fundamental quantities moving. And actually, I think it could also be the charge on the electron that is different at those, you know, really long look back times or the speed of light. But the data are very, very near the limit of detectability. I have never really thought that there was enough information there to make that claim. Mm. Um, and I'd be interested to, I should try and catch up with John sometime, have a talk to him, see what he thinks these days. Um, because I probably couldn't understand any of the papers he writes. Uh, <laughs> if I can catch up with him when COVID-19 comes, I'll probably find him in Mamansk or Reykjavik or somewhere like that, and we'll have a chat about it. That anyway, it, 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 it's a basic fundamental of the universe. And to ask why it's constant is a really good question, and I don't know the answer. There you are, Thomas. Once again, <clears throat> we uh, are unable to help. But uh, we, we yeah. do have... <laughs> We do our best uh, to be adequate. It's, it's the edge of knowledge. That's uh, yeah. kind of where we've got to. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, and you know what? It, 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 it's probably not surprising that people are asking questions like that because yeah, we're all wondering it. about it. Yeah, they and get it. so <laughs> they, they throw the questions at you, Fred, because you're so astute and uh, should, should absolutely know the answer to the unanswerable questions, but <laughs> forgivable that you, you don't quite have it all. Not quite. No. <laughs> I do have one piece of information, uh, Andrew, that is real, and it's a stop press item. Oh. We can stick it in, which I've yeah. just read. Uh, and that is that um, Ingenuity has made a successful ninth flight. Uh, it covered a total of 625 metres. That's an enormous distance. Yeah. So they've really pushed it uh, to, uh, you know, to check the limits within which this little helicopter can fly over the surface of Mars. It was a 166.4 seconds. It reached a record top speed of five metres per second. So fantastic. fantastic stuff. Well done, NASA. Well done, the Ingenuity yeah. team. They, they keep pushing the boundaries, don't they? They do, and it comes up good every time. They've yeah. done a great job with it. Great Terrific. Mm. All right, well done. And uh, thank you to everybody who uh, pitched some questions for us this week. Even though we were a bit slow to get to some of these, uh, we appreciate them all. And uh, there are a few more that we might try to trickle through uh, in coming weeks. Uh, and uh, if you sent in audio questions expecting them to be on this week, um, we communications break down, basically. I forgot to tell Hugh I wanted them. I'll take the rap for it. I will. No hiding the truth. But... Um, 
anyway, we will get to them. They will come up in a future episode for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That winds us up, Fred. Thank you. Oh, by the way, um, don't forget, if you want to ask us a question, go to our website, click on the AMA tab. You can send us a text question or an audio question. Uh, it's a pretty simple interface. And we're working on other ways of getting questions to us. There might be um, a new process in the not-too-distant future. It just depends how things go. But, uh, yeah, spacenutspodcast.com, of course, our website, uh, which brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you so much, Fred. Good to see you. Good to talk to you. Yeah, great to talk to you as well, Andrew. And um, we'll try and be more definitive about some of our answers next time. <laughs> well, they should ask us easier questions. This is yeah, what yeah. I always thought no, when I was great. at school. You know, what an audience who, who whose questions <laughs> are right at the forefront of knowledge. It's brilliant stuff. Indeed. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Take care, Fred. We'll catch you next week. Sounds great. See you, Andrew. Bye. Uh, Fred Watson, astronomer at large, and to Hugh back in the studio, thanks for pushing all the buttons and pulling all the strings and you know using all the super glue to keep us going. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, as always, thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the very next episode. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts Podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. <laughs>